Thank you so much, Youth Choir. You sound fantastic tonight. Turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 13. We continue our study in the Acts of the Apostles. Let's begin back in chapter 1 for just a moment in verse 8, kind of our thematic verse for the Acts of the Apostles. Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. Remember the church, Jesus has ascended and the church is waiting the Holy Spirit's arrival so they will be empowered. And, and so we see in, in Acts 1.8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem. We began the Acts of the Apostles in Jerusalem. And then you'll spread out to Judea, the area around Jerusalem. Then Samaria, moving just a bit out to the half-Jewish community. And then to the remotest part of the earth. So tonight, back to Acts 13, we begin that ends of the earth or the remotest part of the earth in reaching folk with the gospel. Now, there had already been a breakthrough to the Gentiles. Perhaps you remember Philip's witness to the solitary Ethiopian treasure when they're riding in a chariot and he's reading Isaiah and Philip explains to him that this pointing to Jesus and he says, look, water, can I be baptized? And he says, if you believe in Jesus, you can. They both go down in the water and the Ethiopian treasure is baptized. Or perhaps we've already broken the barrier in chapter 10 with Cornelius when Peter sees the great sheet of all the animals and arise and eat. Lord, I want anything unclean. Arise and eat, arise and eat. And then Peter says, I know he wasn't talking about animals or food. He was talking about people. And remember, Peter goes to Cornelius' house and he's preaching the gospel and the spirit descends and they're baptized with the spirit and thus they are baptized with water. And then already we've seen a great leading of Gentiles to faith there in Antioch, the, the mother church of missions there in Antioch, and how the church in Jerusalem, which is really the center church, well, they send Barnabas to check it out, and Barnabas goes and gets Saul, and they stay there for a year teaching them about the faith and how all the Gentiles in Antioch there come to know Jesus. All that's true. We've had the Ethiopian treasure. We've had Cornelius and his household. We've had all the believers in Antioch. But now still things take another step. It is here in chapter 13, the very first time that we have a church sending out missionaries beyond itself. It is here we have the birth of foreign missions as the church at Antioch, this church of Gentiles, sends out Paul and Barnabas on what has become known as his first missionary trip, chapters 13 and 14. Now, we say Paul had three missionary trips, and indeed, it's most a trip in the first journey where they're really constantly on the move. Now, the second trip we'll see in the future isn't so much a trip because he stays in Corinth so long. And then the third trip is not so much a journey or a trip because he stays in Ephesus so long. So really, you could honestly say this first one is a missionary journey 
the others not nearly as much. What Paul would do on those second trips, he would begin to establish his work in a major metropolitan area and then send his associates like Timothy and Titus and Epaphras out to the other villages to, to share the gospel. Well, let's look at chapter 13, verses 1 through 3. Now, there were at Antioch in the church that was there prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simon, who was also called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And while they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called them. And when they had fasted and prayed, they laid their hands on them and they sent them away. Antioch was the first congregation to reach its own Gentiles. And now, no surprise, they become the first congregation to send out missionaries to spread the good news of Jesus. Well, notice here, they're there in the church, they're prophets. Now, sometimes a prophet can be a future teller. Turn back to chapter 11, uh, verse 27. So sometimes a prophet is a future teller. 11:27. it came about this time. Some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, the church in Antioch. And one of them was named Agabus. He stood up and began to indicate by the Spirit there will be a certain great famine over all the world. This took place during the reign of Claudius. So Agabus was a future-telling prophet as he predicted the famine that was to come that hurt so many Jews. But the other kind of prophet was the kind of prophet that was not a future-teller, but a forth-teller. They preached the Word of God. It's probably the second kind of prophet that is in mind in this particular passage, though we know with Agabus there certainly were those that were future-telling in the church. Well, the church is fasting and praying, and the Spirit says to them, we have a job for Barnabas and Saul. Now set them apart and send them on their way. This is something of an ordination. It is a laying on the hands and praying for a ministerial task. Now, who laid on the hands? It's the they is probably the whole church, and that's why when we do uh, ordination, we do first those who ordain, and then we invite the whole church as fasting and praying. They certainly are representing the whole church as they go, and so the whole congregation goes to the gesture of sending Saul and Barnabas on their way. Well, so being, verse 4, so being full of the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. Let's put our map up here. We kind of get some sort of idea. Uh, let's zoom in one more, see if we get it a little tighter. There we go. So you see there in Antioch there, they're going to go over 16 miles to Seleucia, and then they're going to travel about 60 miles down to Salamis. Then they're going to go across the Cyprus island, about 90 miles across to Paphos, then they're going to go set sail up to Perga, and then we're going to stop tonight at another Antioch. See the Antioch at the top, Pisidian Antioch. Just leave that up there if you can. You can kind of follow as we go. We start out in Antioch, the church sending Paul and Barnabas on the trip. They go 16 miles to Seleucia. Then they get on the boat, and they go the 60 miles there to Cyprus. 
Well, let's look at verse 5. When they reached Salamis, that was the closest port city to Seleucia there in Cyprus, they began to proclaim the word of the Lord in the synagogues of the Jews, and they also had John as their helper. Well, who is this John? Look back at chapter 12, verse 25. Going back to Antioch Church, we have Barnabas and Saul. They returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their mission, taking along with them John, who is also called Mark. So this is John Mark, kin to Barnabas. So we find out all of a sudden, verse 5, that John Mark goes on this trip with them on the boat, for he is their helper. When they go on through the whole island, so now we're preaching the gospel all across this island to Paphos, 90 miles. They found a certain magician. So they find a magos. Now, you know this word magos. Trevor introduced it to us in his Christmas sermon. It is the wise men. Now, sometimes it's used in a positive sense, like it is in the birth story, where the magos are obeying God and they seem to have a, a certain dignity and dynasty to them. But there are other times when magos is used, as it's used here, as someone who's a charlatan magician. So when they had gone through the whole island, as far as Paphos, they found a certain magos, that's a magician. In case you don't get that he's not the good kind of magos, notice the next words. A Jewish false prophet whose name was Son of Jesus, Son of the Savior. So he's also called Elimus, but here he's called Bar Jesus, he is son of the Savior. Well, now the Romans could be won over by a charlatan who was a quick talker. They had their own oracles where they tried to predict the future, kind of like palm reading. They went to these sorts of things. And if someone was smooth and highly knowledgeable and was practicing a few tricks with some pseudoscience, the Romans could be won over as apparently this bar Jesus, this Eliamus, had done. Well, notice this bar Jesus, this false prophet, verse 7, was with the proconsul, the Roman, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence. So Sergius Paulus has this false magician with him. He's a smart man. And Sergius Paulus calls for Barnabas and Paul because... Though he's a Roman official, he wants to hear the word of God. But Eliamus, the Magos, or his name was translated, was opposing them, seeking to turn Sergius Paulus, the proconsul, away from the faith. But Saul, who's also known as Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, fixed his gaze upon him and said, You are full of deceit and fraud. You are son of the devil. The enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease to make crooked the straight ways of the Lord? Now, you got to miss, can't miss the play on words here in the Aramaic. His name was Bar Jesus, son of the Savior. And Paul turns and tells him, you're not son of the Savior, you're the son of the devil. Stop interrupting the preaching of the gospel. 
That would not have been a good time to oppose the Apostle Paul. Paul's full of the Holy Spirit, puts his gaze upon the man, says you're full of deceit, you're making crooked the straight ways of the Lord, you son of the devil. Now behold, the Lord has a hand upon you, and you will go blind. You will not see the sunshine. And immediately a mist of darkness fell upon him. He went about seeking those who would lead him by the hand. Now, if you know Acts, if you've been following us so far, who himself had been blind for a period of time? Paul. He knew what it was like to lose your sight. Now, Paul lost it as proof of his belief. And he was dependent on the Lord and went through a time of discipleship and reflection. It wasn't really a punishment for Paul after seeing the bright light. But he knew what it was like to go blind. And he says to this bar Jesus, or as the Spirit would call him, son of the devil, you're going to go blind for a while. Look how pitiful he is. The one who was so powerful, he's just trying to find people who will lead him by the hand. And then verse 12, then the proconsul believed when he saw what had happened and being amazed at the teaching of the Lord. Now, this magician, this Magos, was trying to stop the proconsul from hearing the word of God. But actually, because of his protest, Paul made him blind with the power of the Spirit. And it was Paul's ability and power to make the magician go blind that caused Sergius Paulus to believe. He was amazed at the teaching of the Lord. Now, this may be the apex of the story on the island of Cyprus on the whole island here starting in Salamis preaching the 90 miles across we're not told of any other conversion now I suppose there were some Paul's preaching the gospel he always had converts but the one that stands out is this Sergius Paulus we're told the Roman official the conversion of a prominent Roman official is the highlight of this first trip to Cyprus. Now, Barnabas, you might want to know, was a Cyprian. Barnabas was from this island. There were other believers from this island, so it must have been special to Barnabas, a Cypriot by birth, to go to his own homeland and to preach the gospel. Well, verse 13, they address the synagogue at Pisidian Antioch. Now Paul and his companions put out to sea from Paphos and came to Perga and Pamphylia. So now we're leaving Paphos. We're making a long trip up north to Perga. You see it there. So they're in Perga and Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. Now it's important for you to see that John Mark, he's young, kin to Barnabas, He's a quitter on the first missionary journey. Now, it's important to see that because when they go to take the second missionary journey, Barnabas is going to say, hey, let me go get John Mark. You know, he went the first time, and Paul's going to say, he's a quitter. He's not going to me. I took him on a trip. You ever have a bad missionary trip experience with somebody? You're not taking him again. I'm not taking him again. We've all been on that trip, haven't we? He ain't going to me again. He's staying home. He's a quitter. Why did he quit? 
Some say he quit because he didn't like it that Paul was becoming the authority while his cousin Barnabas was playing the second fiddle role, and he didn't like that. Other people say he was too young, and, and perhaps he was, he was too homesick. And others said he realized that the going up to Pisidia and Antioch, they had to go across the mountain range, and it was a long way, and there were bandits on that trip, and it was barren land, or sometimes the rivers were, would swell, and it was a dangerous trip, and he said, if you guys are going that direction, then I'm going home to mama. I don't know, but John Mark went home to mama. He was done. That was a, a hundred miles. He didn't sign up for that kind of trip, and so, well, the mountain range is more than he could take, and so he... He decides there that he's going to call it, call it quits. So he finds himself finished there on the trip. But they were going from Perga. They arrived at Pisidian Antioch. Now Luke makes like that's no big trip. That's, that's 90 miles. That's through the mountains. That's uh, a drought. It could be bandits. So that's a big deal. Uh, they, they're going from Perga. They arrived in Pisidian Antioch. And on the Sabbath day, they went to the synagogue and sat down. Now, this was the modus operandi of the Apostle Paul. Whenever he went to a village, the first thing he did was find the Jews, find the synagogue where they worshiped, and brought to the Jews, his own people, the people of Jesus, the gospel. They did, they got the scroll, they read the law, verse 15, they read the prophets. And when there was a visiting preacher, it was a custom to say to them, as happens to Jesus in Luke chapter 4, they asked him, brethren, you got any word to bring us? Get up and say it. So they, Paul stood up, a motion with his hand. He said, men of Israel, you who fear God, listen to me. Now what's amazing about this sermon by Paul. Remember I said at the beginning of our Acts study that the purest form of what the apostle believed is right here in these early sermons and Acts. And we went through about seven elements that you can find in these Acts sermons by Peter. That's who we've heard preached so far and Stephen a bit, but Peter primarily. And we looked at those elements where they say that the story of Jesus is fulfilling the Hebrew prophets, that there's nothing new here, that the Spirit has descended upon the people of God, that you, the Jewish people, have crucified him, but God raised him from the dead, and that you could be saved and forgiven from your sins if you're willing to repent. That's the Sermon of the Apostles. That's it. What's amazing is not only does Paul's sermon sound like Peter's, he quotes the same Psalms. They had a message about David and the Messiah coming through David. And so as we go through Paul's sermon here, listen to the elements that sound so familiar with what you have already heard. He starts out sounding like Stephen giving a Jewish history lesson. Let's point those elements out as we go. Paul stood up, tells them to be quiet, commands the room, men of Israel... You who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers. He made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. 
And with uplifted arm, he led them out from it. What is the biggest event in the Old Testament? What is the Calvary of the Old Testament? It is the Exodus when they are set free from bondage. So here it is. He set them free from the land of Egypt. And for a period of 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness when he destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed the land as inheritance. And all this took 450 years. And after these things, he gave them judges until he gave them Samuel. And then they asked for a king and God gave them Saul. He's trying to get from Saul. He's trying to get to David, isn't he? A man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. And then after he removed him, he raised up David. Because we're looking for what? The Davidic king who will rule forever. He raised up David to be their king, verse 22, concerning whom he had also testified and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart who will do all my will. From the offspring of this man, according to a promise, God has brought Israel a savior, Jesus. So he stands up, be quiet, listen to me. He doesn't start nowhere. He starts with their story. The story of Abraham, then the story of Moses and the Exodus, the story of the wilderness wandering, the stories of God defeating the inhabitants of the land and giving out the land over all this long period of time. And then when they needed judges, God raised up judges and they demanded a king and God gave them Saul. Then Saul failed and God gave them David and we're looking for that forever David king and we get him. From the offspring of this man, David, verse 23, according to the promise God had made, he has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus. He's preaching to Jews. When he preaches to Gentiles, it sounds different, but he's preaching to Jews. Now, we've got the Old Testament story. We've got the story of crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. So Old Testament story of Israel, New Testament crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. We need somebody in the middle to give us a transition. And who's the only character in the New Testament who can do that? John, the last of the Old Testament prophets in some way. Then John the Baptist had proclaimed before his coming a prophet in the line of the Old Testament prophets. If baptismal repentance to all the people of Israel and all of Israel came to the Jordan to repent and be baptized. And while John, verse 25, was completing his course, he kept saying, Who do you suppose that I am? I am not the Messiah. Behold, there's one coming after me, and I'm not worthy to, indeed, to tie the sandals on his feet. Brethren, you're sons of Abraham, verse 26. And those among you who fear God. Now remember, we studied this fear God crowd. You have the Jews, and then you have a group of people who want to worship the Jewish God. Cornelius was one who what? Feared God. They're not willing to be circumcised. They're not ready to become Jews, but they fear the God of the Jews. So he's preaching in the synagogue there to Abraham's family, the Jews, and those who have come in who are those who fear God, the God-fears, the Corneliuses who make great Christians because they love the God of the Jews, but they don't want to be Jews, and through Jesus, they don't have to be. They can be sons of Abraham by belief and not by the flesh. 
For those who live in Jerusalem, that is their rulers, recognizing Jesus, they didn't recognize Jesus, nor the utterances of the prophets, which were read every Sabbath, fulfilled by condemning him. Jesus fulfilled the prophets and the Jewish officials, the high priest. He didn't see it, the Sanhedrin. They missed it. They condemned him. And though they found no ground for putting him to death, verse 28, they asked Pilate that he be executed. When they had carried out all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the cross and they laid him in the tomb. This is the low part of the sermon. Condemned, though innocent, crucified, laid in the tomb. That next verse, verse 30, great first two words. They laid him in the tomb, but God. Man, that'd be a good Easter sermon title, wouldn't it? I'm thinking about it. That's good. But God. They laid him in the tomb. Doesn't matter what they did, does it? But God. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days, he, he appeared to those who came up. Well, how many days? Think in your mind. How many days did he appear to them? There's one passage there in Acts chapter 1 that tells us that he made these resurrection appearances over a period of 40 days. In case you didn't know that, somebody asked you, you're going to guess 7. I don't want you to guess 7. I want you to know 40. So it's kind of a surprising thing that he was able to manifest himself to the disciples for that, that period of 40 days. So from the time of the resurrection... Acts 1, 3, to these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days. You got it? 40 days. So now back to Acts. He's preaching to them, God raised him dead, and for many days. If he'd said 40, it'd be the twice in the New Testament we had it. For many days, for 40 days, he appeared to those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, the very ones who were witnesses, his witnesses to the people. Now, and we preach the good news to you of the promise of the fathers, that God has fulfilled this promise to our children and that he raised up Jesus. As is written in the second Psalm, Psalm 2, you are my son, today I have begotten you. When, what does he mean? What is the psalmist referring to that you are my son, and today I have become your father, or today I have begotten you, or your translation may say, today I have become your father. It's probably a point in this sermon back to the resurrection, for it is after the resurrection that he ascends to heaven, and he is seated at the right hand of the Father as the victorious Son of God. On your enthronement, the psalmist is saying, I have become your father. And as for the fact that he raised him up from the dead, no more to return to decay, he has spoken in this way. Isaiah 55, there in verse 34, I will give you the holy and the sure blessings of David. Verse 35 is, is Psalm 16. You remember David, I mean, Peter in his sermon made this same reference to David. In Acts 2.27, Peter used the same, same message. So it was said, they thought concerning David that he would never see decay. Verse 35, 
Therefore, he also says another psalm, Thou will not allow thy holy one to undergo decay. Who is this holy one? They thought David, perhaps, but no. For David, after he served the purpose of God for his own generation, he fell asleep. We know where his we know where he's buried. He went, underwent decay. So we can't be talking about David. We're talking about David's descendants. But he whom God raised did not undergo decay. So the psalm is not about David. It is about the ultimate David, the one from the dynasty of David. It is about Jesus, for we know where David's grave is. Peter preaches it. Now Paul has preached it. But you can't show me Jesus' grave because God raised him from the grave Verse 37, who, he whom God raised did not undergo decay. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through him forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And notice verse 30, therefore you need to believe for everyone who believes is freed. The things you could not be freed from through the law of Moses. Moses couldn't accomplish it. Just replace this morning's sermon in your mind. It had to be done through belief in Jesus. Then he gives them Habakkuk 1.5, a passage that was first used to warn that Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon was coming upon Jerusalem. Behold, verse 41, you scoffers and marvel and perish, for I am accomplishing a work in your days, a work which you will never believe, though someone should describe it to you. And as Paul and Barnabas were going out, the people kept begging these things might be spoken to them the next Sabbath. So they meet again the next Sabbath. Notice the Jews are there, verse 43, the God-fearers are coming again. Paul and Barnabas, they told him to keep telling us about this grace and forgiveness. Verse 44, this Sunday, the Sabbath, I mean the Saturday, the whole city assembled to hear the word of God. The Jews saw all the Gentiles. Hey, now it's one thing to tell the Jews about the Messiah, but if the Gentiles were involved, the Jews and their jealousy wanted nothing of it. They began to contradict Paul. They didn't like the story because the story included Gentiles. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and said, it was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first, since you repudiated and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, now I'm going to the Gentiles. Start in the synagogue. The synagogue kicks him out. He goes to the Gentiles. For Isaiah 42, 49, verse 47, I've placed you, O Israel, as a light for the Gentiles, that you should bring salvation. Where? Where are we trying to go in Acts? To the end of the earth. There's Acts 1.8, the remotest part of the earth. The Gentiles, verse 48, when they hear the gospel, they start rejoicing. They, they were pointed to eternal life, verse 48. The word of God began, the word of the Lord began to spread through the whole region. But the Jews, they aroused the devout women and prominence in the leading men of the city and instigated the persecution against Paul and Barnabas. They drive them out. They have to leave. Now look at verse 51. They take off their shoes, Paul and Barnabas. They shake the dust off of their feet in protest against, and then they go over, to, they leaving Antioch, they go over to Iconium. Now, what's interesting about them taking their shoes off and shaking the dust off, what did a Jew do when he had to travel through Gentile territory, get that Gentile dust off his shoes? You see, Paul has turned it on his head, and now he's getting that Jewish dust off his shoes because God has called him to begin with the Jews, but when the Jews refuse, 
to go to the Gentiles because Israel was always, claimed, always called to be a light to the Gentiles, to bring to salvation to the end of the earth. Verse 52, the disciples were continually filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. God, what a powerful word. What an early message from an apostle whose feet we love to be seated at. To hear him rehearse the history of Israel. To hear him say that there was a, a dynasty of David that would last forever, but it wasn't in David himself. It was in his descendant. It was in Jesus. Father, may we take the gospel to the other ends of the earth, that men may be filled with the Holy Spirit and women and be filled with your joy. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.